Praise the name of the Lord. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Good-looking congregation out there this morning. You know, so much time in our culture, if we're not careful, we can get sidetracked as a Christian. Sometimes we can chase things we don't need to be chasing. Sometimes we can desire things that we don't need to be desiring. Sometimes we can look for things in the wrong places. And sometimes we can get caught off guard and get snared by the enemy. It happens a lot all the time throughout the Christian world. I heard a story the other day about a man that had lost his wife in death. And he was really upset and it took a long time for him to get over it and finally he started dating and after a while, a year or so, he ended up marrying another woman. And one day his children were in town and some of the people were saying, man, your dad's still having a rough time over the death of your mother, isn't he? And they said, well, I think he's doing better. They said, well, every day when we come to town, we see him out at the cemetery at the grave and he's being over and he's crying and he's speaking, you can see it. And so we've never stopped to bother him, said, but, you know, he's having a tough time. And the kids got together and said, man, we didn't know that was going on. We might ought to go out to the cemetery and find out what's taking place. And so they go out there, and sure enough, there's their dad out in the cemetery at noon. And he's over the grave. And they walk up, and they're very troubled by what they saw. His dad, the dad was sitting there, why did you die? Why did you have to leave? My life was so good. And finally, the daughter picked him on the shoulder and said, Dad, what are you doing? This is not mom's grave. And he said, I know it's not. And they looked at the name on the grave and it was the ex-husband of the wife that he had just married. <clears throat> I hope you're not making those kinds of choices. Hallelujah. Well, now I just lost my train of thought for my sermon. Hallelujah. We're going to get into the word of the Lord this morning. You know, I really cannot believe it. Here we are celebrating the year of our Lord, 2023. And let me just say it again, even though it's the 15th day of January, I want to say Happy New Year to you. I believe this new year is going to hold a lot of good things for us. My wife has declared it the year of happiness. So I just declare it with her. If we're going to be happy, we're going to be happy together. So we're going to be happy around here. So it's might as well put a smile on your face at the Palace of Praise because in the year 2023, we're going to be a happy people. Is that all right? But as a pastor, you know, each year I start praying for a theme and a vision and direction for our church and for the next coming year. God, what do you have for us? It isn't that we're changing the corporate vision of the church from year to year, but we do try to bring freshness in our approach and fulfilling the vision and the mandate that God has given to us. While with new inspiration and revelation, we try to help facilitate and enhance our vision and our mandate that God has actually assigned to this congregation. This year has been the hardest year of my life, I admit it, trying to find God's mind in our approach that we are to take for the year of 2023. It's been very difficult. The job of a pastor, as you know, is to lead, to direct, to teach, and to reveal the will of God for that congregation, and that I, that's my 
responsibility and I take it, I take it, I, I, I don't take it very lightly. I take it very seriously. And even though we all know what our vision is at the palace and what our church statement and purpose is, and that is that the palace of praise exists to expand the kingdom of God by exalting Jesus Christ and equipping believers with ministry and purpose. There are three things that we focus on, expanding, exalting, and equipping. And the expanding is much of the call and the mandate of the church in every church because every church is to be evangelistic. And the reason why is because the Great Commission commands us to go out and to preach the gospel and to win people to the Lord, that we're to bring sheaves into. Our whole job is to get people saved. How many believe that? We're to expand the kingdom of God. We were born into a spiritual kingdom and we're out to literally expand that kingdom that we've been born again into. And the second thing is we are also a, a commanded of God in this congregation to exalt Jesus Christ. And we don't only make him savior around here, but we make him Lord. He is the preeminent one. He is the mighty one. He is to be the Lord of the church. He's to be the church boss. Can I have an amen? Everybody always talks about elders or pastors or, or councilmen being bosses. Oh no, God is the church boss. He's the one in whom we follow. He's the one, he's the great commander. He's the one in charge. He's the chief cornerstone of the church. Can I have an amen? So before we get any farther, why don't we fulfill one of our mandates? Can you lift your hand and exalt Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, and tell him that you love him and tell him that you're trusting in him? Absolutely, Lord, we give you praise. We give you praise for being king of kings and lord of lords. We give you praise for being the, the lord of this church, and we give you glory for it. But not only are we out to expand and exalt, but we're out to equip. We're out to equip every believer with ministry and purpose. Every single one of us, not only do we have a corporate call, but we have also individual callings. Our callings is without repentance according to the word of the Lord. That means that because I am called to preach, I can't repent and say, God, I don't want to be a preacher anymore. Until the day I die, I am called to preach and I have to be obedient to that calling. God does not change his mind. God, don't call me as a teenager to preach and then when I'm in my 30s say, well, you're not a preacher anymore. That isn't the way that God works. And I want you to understand that all of us have callings and all of us have talents and giftedness that we are to give over to the Lord. My wife said ministry is like playing a game that if you don't get in the game, you're not going to stay around very long. And if people don't find ownership in the church, if they don't find ownership and they don't feel a part of the church and they don't get actively involved in the church, they're not going to stick around very long. And I want you to understand one of the worst lives there is is a life that's being lived that's not being fulfilled because they're not obeying what God's called them to do. Everybody's called to do different stuff. Some people are called to drive a church bus. Some are called to be a greeter. Some are called, my dad, he said, my calling in life is to be a greeter. And he used to step outside and wave at people and love on people and make sure everybody was, their hands were shaking. He said, when people come in, I want to make them know they're loved and this place loves them and they're accepted. That was his calling in life. It was a great calling. And he didn't have to have the line out. He just wanted to love on people. God's call and mandate to him was love people. Can I have an amen? So we all have this calling and we all have this life. Yet knowing our vision as a church and knowing how to perform it and do it is another thing. It's one thing to know what God's called us to do, but now God 
What is the approach? How do we tackle this assignment? How do we try to fulfill the mandate that's upon us? And each new year, things change and shift and transitions take place to where sometimes you have to revisit your vision approach and make, adjust, uh, make adjustments to accommodate the changes. For example, in the year 2020 and 21 and even up to 22, COVID changed everything. I want you to know it rocked our world around here. Matter of fact, we have not got back to the numbers that we had prior to COVID. Churches all over America are saying we've never rebounded from what COVID had done. It's demolished some churches. There's a pastor that was running 3,300 people, and today, because of COVID, he's running 300. It's all over the country like that. There are places where fear set into communities because of COVID and churches have been ravished as a result of it. I can remember coming up here and preaching to a congregation with no one sitting in the pews and I had to be filmed and I had to preach with passion. You know how hard it is to preach with passion with nobody sitting out there? It was very, very difficult. It was very, very hard. We had to make adjustments because of the problems that have come up and because of what COVID did to the church. If we did not make those adjustments, we would have been destroyed. And through the process of time, cultures change, people change, city changes, powers change, landscape changes, population changes, government changes, leadership changes, and people, you know what? They come and they go. People die, infants are birthed, things rise, things fall. There's a circle of life. Uh, things collapse while other things grow and prosper. And while all of this takes place, yet I want you to know Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mandate does not change, his call does not change, his assignment to you does not change. Though everything in the world may collapse around you and everything in the world may change around you, yet God's call and commission to you as an individual and as a church does not change. But how then do we go about our vision with everything changing, circumstances arising? There's times we have to rein in the budget because we're spending too much. There's times we can release more money because more money's coming in. It's a constant racket of keeping an eye on things. And try, church, running a church is hard. Running ministry is hard. You gotta be smart. Can I have an Amen. Not that we're the smartest people on the block, but I tell you, we serve the smartest God that I've ever seen in my life. Hallelujah. Give him praise. He's the Lord of the church. He said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But, you know, the big thing I want you to know, in order to understand how to facilitate the vision of the church for this upcoming year, we have to have insight on the things that have changed around us and we have to make the necessary adjustments or in some cases, we can even take advantage of the change so that we can go forward with our vision. Some changes are bad. Some changes are good. Some people change just to be changing. These women, I can't keep up with them. Oh, no, I'm not being mean. I mean, one day they're blonde. Next day they're black-headed. Walk in. Who, who was that? Well, that was, a, well, man, she was just blonde-headed yesterday. You know, and they're always evolving, changing. My wife's, uh, my wife used to say, you know, we'd get in discussions about different people and, 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 and our, our, even our own home about our makeup. And I said, well, I'll tell you what one woman said, said if the old barn's looking pretty bad, put some makeup on it. Can I have an amen? Nothing wrong with that. But the truth of the matter is things change. 
People change. The way culture changes, cities changes. We can see a conservative town in our culture like never before. We can see a conservative town go liberal overnight because of a population increase. Or vice versa, you can see a town that's liberal go conservative overnight because of a, because of a population increase, we can, which, which will affect the school, the government, the homes, the care facilities, the hospitals. It'll affect everything. We see towns on the southern border where 350,000 people can show up overnight. Now, how would you like to have 350,000 people all of a sudden just move into Poplar Bluff and you go downtown and there's people sleeping all over the sidewalks and there's people sleeping outdoors and there's people camped out outside of your house. That's what's happened in a lot of cities of America. Folks, let's get real. We're living in some changing times. We're living in some dangerous times. Don't think for a minute that the devil is at studying and putting together a national plan to infiltrate an area with his propaganda and to influence that place. He's spreading discord, false information, deception, lies. Why? He's the prince of the power of the air and he's the father of lies. And he is misleading America and promoting his agenda for people to buy into his cause. It's called the view. He's trying to get people to bind his view. And this is called in scripture cosmos. It is the Greek word for the word world. It's the system and the beauty of arrangement that he's trying to establish upon the earth to further the cause of the enemy. It's called cosmos. Five different times Jesus uses the word world in the book of John. And all five times he uses the word, the Greek word Cosmos, there are two other Greek words for the word world. One means inhabitants, the inhabitants of the people that dwell upon the earth. The other one means the planet itself, the earth, the dirt. But the third one, that cosmos, means the beauty and the arrangement or the system in which the prince and the power of the air operates in. And Jesus said, love not the world, neither the things that's in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They're not of the Father, but they're of the world. And the world is going to pass away, and the lust thereof. But he that, he that doeth the will of God about it forever. Five different times he uses that word cosmos, that the enemy is out to set a system in which he can operate in to deceive you. Come on, somebody. Matter of fact, he shifts principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness all the time and spiritual wickedness in high places to perform his will. How many know that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual wickedness in high places? He takes away from one place, he adds to another, he juggles, he shifts, he forms, he changes to accommodate his original plan, which is to take over and to take control. And when his original plan doesn't work, guess what he does? He readjusts us. And guess what happens when we in our ministry and our original plan don't work? What do we do? We gripe, we complain, and we quit. The devil is a lot smarter than we are. He just says, oh, well, that didn't work, so I'll try something else. And he pulls this demon out from here, and he puts that demon over there, and he takes this wickedness and puts it over. He's constantly plotting and planning and scheming according to the word of God. His main agenda is to push God out of a culture and to kill and to steal and destroy so that he can bring death to America and bring death to the church and bring death to your home. As I began to seek the Lord for the year of 2023, I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit for us to just look back in our past. 
Matter of fact, it was the prophet Jeremiah that had one of the most difficult tasks in the history of dealing with Judah. As a pastor, I find myself like the prophet of Jeremiah and his divine assignment was to admonish the citizens of ancient Judah to return back to the Lord from which they had wandered and from which they had fallen. He was called of God to go as a prophet and warn the people of impending judgment. And you know, this is the first time in the history of America that there are less than one-third of the population of America going to church. Over two-thirds, over two-thirds of America are non-church now. We are living in a Christless society. Everybody talks about, oh, America's a Christian nation. Not no longer. Not when you have less than one-third of your people attending church on a regular basis. We have fallen. We have, we have backslidden as a nation. Come on, somebody. We are not walking close to God like we did at one time as a nation. The nation of Judah was languishing under the threat of impending punishment. The Babylonian captivity was evident and, and, and it was going to happen if the people didn't repent. Jeremiah and the prophet gets up and tells them, if you don't repent, you're going to be carried away. There's an outside influence that's going to come in and they're going to, he tells you, he said, they're going to harvest you and gather you like grapes. It's going to be that easy. And they wouldn't listen. Notice his plea as a prophet to the nation in which he was to lead. Jeremiah 6 and 16, this saith the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we would not walk in it. Here's Jeremiah, the prophet. He began to preach to them and tell them what God had said and the people refused to abandon the culture that was thrust in them in the future judgment. Jeremiah says, God wants you to look at the roads and choose the, and look back and follow those paths of the old paths where you find rest unto your souls. The real question was, was it the culture that they did not want to abandon or was it picking up the old paths that they were rejecting? There's a big difference. Is it that they didn't want to leave the culture or was it that they didn't want to follow the ways of God? They didn't want the restraints of God upon their life. They didn't want God to command them and teach them. They thought God's ways were too grievous. I don't know why they think that because the Bible says that if we don't keep his commandments, then we say that we love God, we're a liar and the truth ain't in us. And then God tells us that if we keep his commandments, he tells us and commands us to keep his commandments because they're not grievous. They're not hard. The things that God tells us to do, they're not, it's not a difficult task to obey the, the commandments of God. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah even prophesied, and I told you I'd be hammering this pretty hard. He said, look back to the old past, which is a good way, say a good way, where you found rest for your souls. We are having so many people with no hope. We're having so many people that's so restless. We're people that are seeing people wear the tire marks of the world upon their back. As a Christian, that ought not be so. This place ought to be a place of peace, a place of refuge, a place of hope. I'm not sitting around fretting about what the world's doing. I'm magnifying what God's doing. Come on, somebody. My hope ain't in the world. My hope is in Jesus Christ. He's the hope of the world. Can I have an amen? You don't have to wear the tread march of the, of the world on your back. You don't have to come in heavy laden and ho oh, and ring on your hands and what's going to happen and did you hear about the digital dollar coming? Did you hear about, no, I heard about the presence of God that he'll 
keep me and guard me all the days of my life and no evil thing shall come upon me. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, flood, he'll raise up a standard and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. No, I'm not really concerned about what the, world is, what the world's doing. I'm cradled in the arms of Jesus. My name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. Ah, somebody ought to be getting happy about right now. Can I have an Amen. But then we understand Jesus answered why people would not follow the old paths. John 3 and 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. People don't want to serve God because their deeds are evil and they're convicted and they don't want to turn. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do the things I want to do. They're more fun. They're more excited. You know, there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is destruction. The wages of sin... It's pleasurable for a season, but when it gets done reaping, it brings forth death. Come on, somebody. And we have people all the time, they're not wanting to serve God. That's their problem. They're not wanting to fully commit. They're not really, really willing to sell out and be sanctified and consecrated before the Lord. I think America is in the same place that of Judah in the day of Jeremiah. And the first eight verses of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 6, he's warning them of the sinister force that has threatened to take over Jerusalem because of their consistent wickedness. He begins to tell them, Jeremiah tells them, unless you repent, the disciplinarian force will assault the land and Judah will be harvested like a crop of grapes, which is a token of God's judgment. And did you notice that Judah is going to be taken over by the Babylonian army as a result of disciplinarian action? It was designed of God. A lot of times we say, oh, the enemy's coming in after me. It's God allowing it so that he can discipline you. I rebuke you, devil, and you're rebuking the very assignment that God's allowing the devil to have. How do I know that? Because when Job was going to be tried, it was God that told the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And he said, yeah, but the problem is you got a hedge around him. I can't even touch him. I can't do nothing. You're protecting him. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let his head down, but you can't do two things. Come on. One of the things you can't do, you can't kill him. Can't take him out. But he's going, I want to tell you, he's going to be a man that's going to stand the time. Oh, he won't. Let, he'll curse you to your face. And the enemy started throwing everything at him. Did you know God had trust that Job would do the right thing because he was a righteous man, one that feareth God, as she with evil? And therefore, nothing could happen to Job unless God allowed it to happen. Amen. But here Jeremiah warns them of the enemy that will prevail and Judah will fall prey into the hands of the Babylonian army. The culture had become sinful and impending judgment was evident if the people did not repent. But he gives them the alternative. Repent this ain't gonna happen. Turn, this won't happen. And folks, I wanna tell you something. When the wicked rule, the nation mourns. When righteousness rules, the nation is blessed. Can I have an amen? Sin is a reproach to any people. And if wickedness keeps ruling and if the nation keeps going the way it is, we're going to suffer for the sins of our nation. Even us as Christians. Yet God will help us through it. Thank God for it. But we got to pray that this nation turns. Hallelujah. Let me just say this. I prophesy in the name of Jesus. Watch out, nation. Divine awakening's coming. 
It's right here on us right now. Hallelujah. We'll get to that at the end of the message. But even as the prophet tried to make them look back to the time when life was good, when they were living out the old paths, he tried to show them through their own history that they were happier during the times of the past when they were following God in comparison to the present-day distresses while living in sin. And then that what Psalm 16 and 11 says? He says, thou will show me the path of life. And in the path of life, at your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. The Bible tells us in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Folks, there's nothing like being in the favor of God in your life. It's a good way. It's a perfect way. It's a fun way. Trust it. There ain't nothing that sin has to offer. I want to tell you the greatest high that you can get doesn't come from marijuana or drugs or anything. The greatest high is getting under the presence of the almighty God. Can I have an amen? I got drunk when I was a teenager one time until I thought I was going to die. I got up the next morning, everything was spinning. That night, I got broken by one of my friend's fathers. He caught us a drink. He said, oh, you want to become a man? I'll make you a man. And he got us some Coors beer and an old charter whiskey. And he put us in a car, and he said, here, take a drink of this. And Big swig, and it was that old charter whiskey, and we'd take a drink, and then he'd hand us a Coors beer. Chase it with that. We'd take a drink of that beer. Well, it wasn't three minutes. I'm out. I wake up on the couch during th- in the middle of the night with everything spinning, trying to get to the bathroom to throw up. And I remember going home, and we lived across the field, and every three steps, ah, it's a horrible drunk. And I want to tell you, I learned my lesson not to be drinking. But I tell you, one of the greatest drunks I've ever been on in my life is being intoxicated by the Holy Spirit of God. Be not drunk with wine where it's in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Can I have an amen? It's a good way. It's a great thing. Amen. Ha. David, when he found himself in the present-day dilemmas of life, listen to what he said in Psalm 77. Starting with verse two. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. He said, I tried to get comfort. I couldn't find it. He said, you know, and even though God tries to deal with us, you know, sometimes we're not sensitive enough to really know that it's how to yield to that presence. And David couldn't. He said, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. He got caught up in complaining. He got up and he was overwhelmed in his spirit. Verse four says, thou holdest my eyes walking. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. In other words, this is what he's saying. I sat around holding my eyes and I just cried and I wept and I couldn't stop. And he says, and I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know how to speak. I couldn't speak a word. He was so much in trouble and overwhelmed. But then in verse five, he said, but I have considered the days of old the years of ancient times. He said, I begin to look back to where I come from. I begin to look back to the old paths. And he said, then I called to remembrance my song in the night. He said, I can remember instead of walking around with my hands over my eyes and being troubled and complaining and crying and being sorely vexed. He said, I remember a day when I sung in my dilemmas. I remember a time God gave me a song in the midnight hour. 
I remember a time when the enemy would come in and I'd run him off by singing the songs of Zion. Oh, hallelujah. Boy, I feel like singing right now. Don't you glad I don't go on my feelings? Hallelujah. Because I want to tell you something, folks. God can put a song in your heart no matter what's going on. You can be in a mansion and be miserable, and you can be in a pig pen with a song in your heart, singing the glorious, 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 glory of the kingdom of God, and God can bless you. Oh, hallelujah. I don't know why I feel led to do this. Would you just stand for a minute? Would you give God honor? Would you give him glory and say, I got a song in my heart today? Hallelujah. Yeah, give him praise. Give him praise. He's worthy of it. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Ha. I don't know how much more I'm going to get preaching because I feel the stirring of the Holy Spirit. Ha. I feel a rumbling among the saints right now because God wants to put a song back in your heart. God wants to take away your grief and your complaint and put it with joy and the presence of his glory. It ain't always changing the circumstance. It's changing you in your circumstance. Amen. David said when the times got troublesome and the burdens got so heavy and the way got so hard, it was then that I started thinking and taking remembrance of the old ways and I started taking diligent search of the old things. If there's one thing that we need to do in this congregation is start taking diligent search of the old things. Then David asked in verse eight and nine, is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Have he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? And when we look at America and we see the correction that we're going through right now where God has lifted his hand of favor over certain things, God, it's evident that that's happened. I said that's evident that that's happened. America's not got the favor it once had. It don't have the credibility it once had. don't have the name it had. don't have the influence it had. don't even have the power that it once had. don't have the wealth that it once had. Well, trillions of dollars in debt. Come on, somebody. There's, this is where even America thinks that we're at. We're like, David, is, is God done with us? Are we through as a nation? Is it over? Is there any hope? We ask that because it seems like the enemy just keeps winning and winning and winning. Have you been watching the news? It looks like darkness has taken over. Come on, somebody. The prophets in the day of Jeremiah were saying the exact opposite of what old Jeremiah said. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, but he was also in some of the eyes of the people looked at as the prophet of doom and gloom. Repent or you're gonna be crushed. Everybody else was saying what the prophets are saying today. Well, don't worry about it. In July, there's gonna be a surprise. This is a sign when you see the snow go away. God's gonna do this. And they're saying all these things about how good, great things are going to be when this happens and when that. These are all these signs. And God's always speaking great and hopeful things. But then they look at a guy like Jeremiah. Even the prophets wanted to stone him because, no, that ain't the way it is, boys. I'm here to tell you, you've got one way and one way only. You repent or this place is done. They even threw him in jail over it. That's where we're at in America right now. Now, you can stone me if you want to, but I'm going to be the prophet Jeremiah. I'm not going to be with them other prophets right now. There is hope if we turn. 
There is hope if we repent. Can I have an amen? And then I love this because he shows us the way out. For the next five verses in that psalm, David talks about how that he will revisit the days of old, remember the years of the right hand, the power of the Most High. So I'm gonna look back and I'm gonna remember the time that God moved. I'm gonna look back and I'm gonna remember the time that God visited us and manifested himself among us. He speaks of his wonders and then he talks about his powers and his miracles that he performed. But then he said, this was done in the year of favor in the years of the sanctuary. God, thy way, O God, is in thy sanctuary. Then that really opened my eyes up to how can we change America? It begins with the house of God. It begins when Abraham begins to intercede for a nephew that's caught up in Sodom and Gomorrah and he's going to destroy it. And Abraham begins to intercede. Hey, will you spare him? Will you spare him if I can find 50 righteous? Will you, and then, of course, they couldn't find 50 righteous. Will you spare him if I can find 40? He gets him all the way down to 10. But the truth of the matter is, regardless if the city would be destroyed or not, God did save righteous Lot and his family. Give the Lord praise for that. The intercessory come in. But the time of the sanctuary that he was talking about, it was when the people had a holy reverence of God and they ran and hid in the refuge, which was the sanctuary of God's overwhelming grace and favor. They fell on the altar of God with holy consecration and sanctification of heart. That's what the church needs to be doing. It needs to get serious. We lived in ease too long. And because we live in ease, things go. You know what, folks? When you work hard and hard, you begin to build an empire and you get tired. And the minute you begin to take ease, if you take ease too long, that thing will crumble. You got to keep your hand to the plow. You got to keep your hand working. You got to keep, or, or you got to keep on going on. Be not weary in the Lord. Can I have an amen? You got to be persistent. You got to be consistent in your walking and your values of the Lord. But these people fell on the altar of God with holy consecration and sanctification heart. And then he said, when I looked at the dilemma that Jeremiah and David had, when I did, I seen something that was similar to today. Each one of them revealed a time of a changing culture that drawed God's people away from God's system of order and arrangement. There's cosmos, but there's also divine order that comes from the word of God. And this in return, because these people had begun to get out of divine order. It hindered God's favor. It caused his power and wonders to cease and his miracles and his miraculous to stop, just like that. You can say whatever you want to say. America don't have the miracles it once had. I remember miracles as a young boy. I remember in my, our earlier ministry, it was a lot easier to pray down miracles than it is right now. Why? The favor of God is dwindling because God's people are backsliding and they're pulling back from God as a whole. I don't mean we as a church are doing that, but I want to tell you that's where America's at. Our text speaks of the seven churches of Asia that John wrote to while on the island of Patmos. Very familiar passages of scripture. Each one of these churches represent a church age. Each one of those churches had a prominent spirit that was dominant during their specific time of existence. And let me say this, folks. I, I, well, when I was a young preacher, I come across some material by, the, by Dr. Cross in our denomination who was a theologian. 
and he put out the seven church ages. I thought, I don't know. I've seen that in some of the commentaries, but no one ever convinced me that they represented seven church ages until he broke down the ages and he broke down history and he wrote, and he wrote whole, uh, whole uh, uh, books almost on each church age. And I read as a young minister and he showed all the way from the start of the church on the day of Pentecost to up to date. He showed the different types of spirit that was operating in the church. And every time that, that he said, He'd give a date, and he said, from this date to this date, this spirit was prominent. And then he'd give a whole book and, 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 and uh, um, proof of what he was saying. And then he'd say, now the next church age, that one kind of went away, the other one kind of come in. He said, they overlap. And he said, look at the prominent spirit then, and he would give the date. And each one of those dates represented that dominant spirit that Jesus dealt with in the seven churches of Asia. And I thought, oh, wow, that is, that is phenomenal. This doesn't mean that the other spirits weren't in operation during those particular times because they were. But these churches revealed the dominant, the most progressive spirit during the age and the time that they, that, that, uh, they existed. For example, the church of Ephesus was noted for leaving their first love. Go back and study the history during the time of the church of Ephesus. You'll see that leaving the first love was its prominent spirit. The prominent sin of the day and the spirit of the age was leaving their first love and, and others, other churches were rebuked. They were rebuked for taking on the doctrine of Balaam. Another one was rebuked for the spirit of Jezebel. Even though those doctrines are still much alive in our society today, they are not the prominent spirit like was ruling the church back then. Can I have an Amen. You go through all seven churches of Asia and see the main sin and the spirit of the age that was dominant and prevalent during that particular time. And the only church that was not rebuked or chastened was the church of Philadelphia, which was known as the church of the beloved. It was the church age right prior to this church age that we live in now, which is the final church age before the rapture of the church. The Laodicean church is a church that's gonna usher in the literal rapture of the church. It's the last day church. The Philadelphia church had reformation, awakenings, revivals, and camp meetings and all that in it. It had the power of God because they had the favor of God. They weren't rebuked for anything. This age that we live in now is known as the dispensation of grace, the church age. The present day church, main spirit that dominates and is widespread around the world is what we call the spirit of lukewarmness. That's our biggest enemy. Come on, somebody. That isn't to say that there ain't other spirits in operation and that other spirits don't have an impact upon our lives and tempt us to try. Of course they do. But the most prominent spirit that we deal with today in the church is lukewarmness, which empowers those other spirits and gains access into our life because of our lukewarmness. Revelations 3, verse 15, 16 of our text says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. But because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth. This is God talking. He's gonna spew. In other words, you're losing favor. I'm gonna spew you out. I'm gonna, it's like taking a drink of water. Yuck. It's repulsive to him. The church of the Laodicea is repulsive to God because it's lukewarm stuff. Have you ever drunk lukewarm milk? I don't want to be repulsive to God. 
Come on, somebody. I want to be a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. I want to be holy and acceptable before my God. But he says, if you're going to be lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of the mouth. Where does he spew you? He spews you into tribulation. You missed the rapture of the church. Laodicea set along two major trade routes. The first one ran from Rome eastward all the way into Asia Minor. It went south through Damascus all the way down to Egypt. That's how much territory this trade route actually actually um, housed. The second route that come across that intersection that entered into Laodicea was all the way from the Mediterranean Sea. So here you have a trade route crossing another trade route. It's at an intersection, and that's where it is called the Lycus Valley, and that is where they built the actual city of Laodicea because they were dependent upon the trade route to keep it financially secure and to keep it prosperous. This provided Laodicea with unlimited opportunities for trade, and it was solely dependent upon that trade for its existence. However, the location of this city caused a major problem because usually prosperous cities anywhere in the world are built close to abundant natural resources, especially water. And though this city was driven more by trade, yet it lacked the adequate water supply for its prosperity and survival. And water, how many knows, is a necessity. And it's a valuable resource. And without it, whole empires can crumble. Amen? However, there was a city 10 miles away called Colossia, which had cold, cold, cold spring water. It was noted for its place of refreshment. And they piped water from there to Laodicea. It was 10 miles away. And then there was also another city. I believe it was to the south. It was called Hierapolis. It was six miles away. And they piped water from there, which was noted for its hot springs. It was known as a place of comfort. As a matter of fact, the people believed that the minerals in that hot springs actually helped bring healing. And people would go there by the groves and get in those springs to bring healing to their bodies. However, by the time that the hot water traveled six miles through the pipes to Laodicea, and the cold water traveled 10 miles to Laodicea, by the time it reached the city, it was lukewarm. That's what the problem is, is when you try to drink out of other people's wells and not your own. Come on. Watch out what kind of water somebody may be offering you. Get your own well. Amen. But this was symbolic that it neither healed or comforted nor did it refresh. Hot and cold water is even desired and it's a part of the sustaining of man even to this day. Lukewarm water, I want to tell you, in my opinion, is good for nothing. The place was strictly built upon business and the power of the trade routes. Symbolically, this is what this is saying. It was a society that lived absence from the refreshing, comforting, healing power of God. Matter of fact, they were trying to cleanse themselves without the presence of the Lord. You know, it's like when you come in in the cold winter, isn't it good to get into a hot shower? Can I have an amen? Hot, even hot water cleanses, doesn't it not? It's a representative of cleansing. And when you come in and you've been sweaty on a hot summer, isn't it good to just take a cold bath? How many would rather go to Current River and swim than St. Francis down by Fisk? Oh, come on, somebody. 
I've swimmed in them both. As a matter of fact, if you're not careful, the San Francisco can get so muddy you can't hardly go underwater. The truth of the matter is that we all like that cleansing. We like that freshing presence of God. We like to bathe in the cold or that we like to bathe in the hot. But I want to tell you, lukewarm, it's just not that going to be that cleansing. And then also notice that um, Laodicean represents a people that were trusting in the power of cosmos, the system and the beauty of arrangement of the world for its prosperity, the power of the dollar, the power of wealth, the power of riches, the power of prosperity, the power of labor, the power of the work of their own hands. That's what they were trusting in solely. They were known for their three things, four things, the city was known for its wool. It was known for its education and school system. It was known for their banking system. And it was known for their medicines. They actually produced medicines there for the world. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gave me a divine revelation in a rhema word. What is it in this age right now that is empowering the last day cosmos of the world. The wool represents clothing. What has this system clothed itself with? First of all, it has clothed itself by being able to take over our education in our school systems. Come on. I'm about to preach. In other words, the last day church is going to be faced with the world clothing itself and empowering itself to take over the schools to where they no longer teach, but they indoctrinate. That's how they're going to empower their system. You send a kid off to college, and if it ain't careful, within four years, he loses his faith, and within four years, he's out here with the woke mentality, and he becomes an atheist. Why? Because they're not teaching education. They're brainwashing and indoctrinating our people and they're clothing them with that spirit of the age in order to be able to take over. I'm not going to get done with my sermon. The second thing that they're doing is also they're known for their what? Medicines. What a trick. We thought, how could things change so rapidly? Things were shut down. The world was shut down just like that. All over a virus. And now what are they doing? They're pushing their vaccines. It's the same thing that the Laodicean was powerful in. It's the church age that's dealing with these things. Come on. Now, you can disagree with me if you want to. You can be wrong. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm not trying to be angry. But I want to tell you, it's the same things we're dealing with today without getting stuck on this stuff too long. What's the third thing that they were powerful in? What did they clothe themselves in? It's the banking system. Have you ever been talking about how the, everything's trying to go digital? Ah, so they can track you. Everything's trying to go in the medical realm so they can control you, shut you down, lock house you up. Come on. 
Everything's trying to go educational so they can brainstorm, brain you so you can believe like they believe. They got a system set up. But the problem that they're not counting on, we got a system too. <laughs> Hallelujah. And what they really don't understand is our system's more greater than their system. It is the system of truth. And it is revealed and manifested in a person called Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Laodicean was known for its prosperous financial banking. It became a center of currency exchange even. They bring big checks and they would cash those big bank drafts. Laodicean had become known for its wealth in one of the hugest trade centers in the world. Here's the people that think they're prospering, that they're moving, that they're gaining, that they're obtaining, that they're growing, that they're maturing by the things that they have. Their security was in stuff, materialism. Their hope was in the power of the dollar. Their hope was in the power of their own strength. You got people that's so caught up in careers and you know you need to have a career, you need to work hard, you need to apply yourself, but you don't need to let that career possess you to the point that it takes away your spirituality, your spirituality has to run your career. Can I have an Somebody ought to applaud that. Because if you're not careful, the cares of life will overtake you and you'll crumble. It'll overtake you. You gotta keep everything in line with the word of God. But it appeared that Laodicean was even more richer than Colossian. Ever how you pronounce that big old long? I just made up a name. Where the hot springs was at and where the cold springs was at. And I want to tell you folks, it ain't about the number. It ain't about the crowd that we gather. It's about the substance. It's about the manifestation or whether we have the manifestation of the presence of God or not. I'm gonna have to hurry. I'm gonna get away from my works, uh, from my word here just a moment, my notes. But this is a society that lived void of the presence of God. They were lukewarm. They were void of the refreshing, comforting, healing power of God. And this is why that Jesus said in verse 15 through 17, I know your works are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Because you're not cold or hot, I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So this tells me before Jesus comes back, evil's gonna be put to hell, hold just for a season. I'm here to tell you folks, tribulation can't start until I'm gone. Oh. Tribulation can't stop until the restraining force is gone. The restraining force is not the Holy Spirit because he'll remain on earth during the time of the tribulation. God's, God's presence is omnipresent. If you make your head in hell, behold, he's there. He can't withdraw himself from anywhere. He's everywhere. But I want to tell you the restraining force is the church of Jesus Christ. He will let until he be taken out of the way that he is us. Everybody says no because he said it was the word he. Well, I want to tell you, we're not only the bride of Christ, we're not the bride until we get over there and get united with him. But right now, we're the body of Christ. We're the he. We're the restraining force. We have power over the antichrist spirits. We have dominion. 
Hello? We're full of the Holy Ghost. We're the restraining force. That doesn't mean times ain't going to get hard and there ain't going to be battles and there ain't going to be war. But I'm here to tell you, we keep pushing back and keep pushing back and we keep standing up and that world system cannot take over till we're out of here. Can I have an amen? Can you say hallelujah to that? I'm going to have to quit because of time. But I want to just, I, I, I wish I could just get to the place that, that what God's dealing with me about, and I think I can do it without going through all them other 20 or 30 pages of notes, is that during my lifetime, I'll be 30 years old this year, <laughs> times two. I'll be turning 60 years old, and in 60 years, I believe I lived a part of my life in what you would call the Philadelphia church age. I seen the revivals. I experienced the camp meetings. Come on. I know earlier people in the early 1900s that that age ran through seeing great awakenings that was unbelievable. And by the time I come along, it was coming, that age was coming to a close. But I got on the end of that Philadelphia church age where I seen some glorious stuff. However, I also seen the church beginning to turn lukewarm and they begin to get caught up in formalism and ritualism. Come on. They got caught up in legalistic stuff. And as a result of it, they begin to get more lukewarmer and more lukewarmer. Why? Because the the culture pulled away from that age group that done that because they hated the religion behind it. It took away the freedom in Christ. I remember a day that in some churches in my lifetime you would walk in, the pastor or the deacons or the ladies would have a tape measure measuring the skirt on women, see if it's long enough. I remember a day where they'd take the thing and see how long the hair was on a man or how short it was on a woman. Then they'd look and see if the man had facial hair. Then they'd look at the woman, you got any paint on the barn? If they did, they were in serious trouble. It was legalistic. It was binding. It was garbage. It was ritualism. And it formed a religion. Come on, somebody help me preach. Well, I think I'm doing better without my notes. And what happened was, even though it was not the prominent sin or the prominent thing, yet it began to usher in. It was the forerunner to usher in lukewarmness because it created an image. And when a woman walked in, she was under the scrutiny eye that if she didn't fit that image, she couldn't belong. If the man didn't fit that image, he couldn't belong. Come on. If you were poor and you couldn't wear a suit and tie, you really didn't belong anywhere. And what happened was the society rejected the church and the church become ritualistic, which formed imagery, which is idolatry. You had to fit a certain image to fit in, which is idolatry. Now, here's the problem, and I'm gonna just cut through the chase. Men like me, I seen that problem coming on. I was young. I said, I don't want that to happen. 
I don't want that spirit to take over because one of the things I noticed where that spirit took over, you got a bunch of hype and emotion, but you had no substance of the real moves of God. And people knew it. How did they know it? Because of the egotistical spirit that was behind it and the judgmental spirit of the Christian. They had their nose stuck out to here and they thought they were better than everybody else and they condemned and they had harsh words and they lived in strict bondage. And they wanted to place it on everybody else. And yet they, we're holy. And yet God's view and God's image is nothing like that. Somebody ought to say, good preaching, pastor. And if you can't say that, you need to come to the altar. And anyway, so the spirit began to get rampant and began to grow and us younger guys that was in those camp meetings didn't want to lose them. We didn't want to lose the presence of God and we seen what was happening. So you know what we did? We started setting out to try to make an atmosphere for the sinner, which is the right thing to do. We begin to go more modern in our approach. We started changing the furnishings of the church. We got rid of pews and we went to chairs. Oh, hallelujah. They're comfortable on a fat fanny like mine. Everybody don't like the chairs over the pews, but that's what we did. That's what the church world did. They went away from the songbook and the newsletters and the announcements and they went to screen. Hello? They went away from the greenery. You remember way back there, the trees and the plants and whoo, hallelujah. That was all over the stage. They took away the greenery and they went to lights to decorate, to make it more energetic to try to set an atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, it began to draw people back because that deep, you know, one of the things I love the most is usually used to in my day when I first went in the ministry, all the pastors and leaders sat on stage. And we sat in our pompous chairs that looked like they were royal chairs. While everybody else sat on a pew, we sat in these big royal king chairs big enough for two people to sit in. That's royalty. And they almost over-idolize the pastors. I want your respect, but I don't want to be idolized. I don't want more to be put on me than what I can handle or, or what's expected of me of God. But that's what they did. And the first thing we've done is got rid of those big old royal chairs and we come down and start sitting with everybody else letting them know we're one with you. Come on. We're no better than you. It was a statement. Amen? And we started getting more modern. We started dressing down. Now here's where it gets really bad because everybody's got their own idea about dress in the house of God. God does have a dress code. It's called modesty. If your shorts are too short, you know, you know, come on, or your pants are too tight, You need to go home and change. 
Anything to excess is wrong. Everything's got to be done decently and in moderation. Can I have an amen? I want to tell you right now, I can have a suit and tie on and have all the outside of the cup and platter fully clean and furnished, but the inside be like dead men's bones. A suit does not get me in contact with God. That's silly. But I can have jeans on and have a sincere and a broken and contrite spirit and fall forward before God and get right into his presence. Amen? I can have overhauls on. Work clothes. But if I come in with clothed in righteousness, it's not my outward clothes that gets me access to God. It's whether or not I'm clothed righteously, inwardly, through the presence of Jesus Christ. But on the flip side of the coin, if you got vulgarity, skulls, demons on your shirt, darkness, you got an inner spiritual problem. You got unclean statements, you got a spiritual problem. Christians don't wear that junk. Am I trying to make a balance here? I wish, well, I, I, can, I can tell I'm losing this congregation. <laughs> but here's where we've gone in our attempt to try to think maybe more modern to where people can be free and accepted and looked at as being a part. Now we swung the pendulum way over here. And now we have preachers preaching in, you know, tank tops, clothes with holes all in them. And then they got it to where coming to the foyer, get your Coke, get your coffee, get your croissant, get your donut, and go into the sanctuary with it and have a wonderful worship experience. We've always overcorrected, overreached, overcompensated. Now we swung the pendulum way over here and now we're treating God way too casually. Uh Everybody with me? And now it's almost like, you know, how many knows that your lifestyle is not supposed to be one way at church and another way outside the church because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we're Christians. But here's how we're treating God. Hey, Jesus, sit down and have a beer with me. Everybody says, oh, that's repulsive. Well, we, Christians do it every day. Here, take a drag off of that. It ain't wrong to smoke marijuana. It ain't wrong, man. They, they passed the law saying it's okay now. It's okay. The law says it's okay. So now I'm a Christian. Give me a little bit of weed. Mellow me out. Ooh. You're laughing. That's where the church is headed. All kinds of Christians are saying, hey, I'm coming out of the closet. It's okay, well, you know, it's all right to live together according to the world, but according to God, you're gonna be condemned to hell. 
It's okay to, for a man to marry a man by law. It don't mean I'm going to go do it. You know, it's all right to jump off of a cliff. Go do it and see how that fares out for you. We're living in a decade now where the church has just gotten so bad and lukewarmness has accelerated to a level to where we're treating God casually. And we call them piling in unprepared. We prayed that that week. We had no worship at home. We had no family altars. We've not read our word. We just come in flopped out. Hey, Santa Claus, give me something to fix me today. Oh, give me my thrills so I can go out and be a great witness for you. Come on, somebody. We're living in a decade where the generation don't want challenged. They hate standard of holiness. They hate preaching like mine. But the problem of it is they can't run from it because there's a truth that just keeps drawing them back. Because everywhere else they go, it's unfulfilling. It's unsatisfying. No deeper how they, more they get into it. There's nothing there that's bringing out the void in their lives. Come on. And so what happens? We have a generation that wants to date God but not marrying. We got a generation that says, oh, Savior, but they don't want Lord. Amen. They want intimacy from the Lord, but they don't want the responsibility of that intimacy. They want the thrills, thrills, the bells, the whistles, the excitement, the fun, the pleasure of romance, but they don't want the responsibility of the outcome. They want to have a rendezvous, but they don't want to get pregnant by God. They won't want his purposes in their spiritual wounds. And so they come in in a lukewarm state and they just want to act like a child from the cradle to adolescence. You know, there's a different growth mentality there, isn't there? From the child to adolescence. My dad treated me different in my childhood than he did when I got a little older. In my childhood, he kind of prompted me and babied me and helped me and showed me. When I became a teenager, he wore me out. You know right from mom, big boy. Hello? And everybody wants to stay in that adolescent age or that childhood age. Paul comes along and says, hey, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I acted like a child, but when I came a man, I put away childish things. I had to grow up in this thing. And I'm no longer on a rendezvous with God and having a backseat experience with God intimately and walking out with no purpose I now press toward the high calling of Christ Jesus and I press for that thing which God wants me to do and I am conformed to his image to where I live out his righteousness within my life. Can I have an amen? So what I'm encouraging this church to do, don't camp at Laodicea. All you're gonna get is lukewarm water. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to cleanse. It's not going to refresh. It's not going to comfort. It's not going to heal. You'll not see the power of God living in Laodicea. But you may have all these riches increased with goods. You may drive a better car than the sold out Christian does. 
You may have a better home, a bigger home. But what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul over materialistic stuff? That's why he said, love not the things of the world. Can I have an amen? It's not about how much you can achieve in this life at your trade route. It's how much cool and cold water that you take in and how much hot springs you take in your life. All the other stuff will be added to you. Run. Run to the springs of life. Can I have an amen? Would you stand with me, please?